I want to preach on Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's preach on Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that's unimportant, but it's not the center. And we need to get the center down. So what we're doing in this series is talking about the center. And we're talking about Jesus Christ and the covenant he has made with us. And we're looking at the nature of covenant to understand what the whole New Testament's about. I'll be reading a couple texts as we get into this uh, in a few minutes. But let's open with a word of prayer. Father, let your spirit land. Let your spirit land. Pour out your spirit. Immerse us. Baptize us. Surround us. Drown us in the power of your spirit, in the power of your love, in the power of your truth. And Lord, I pray that as the word of God goes out, it would not be put forth on my uh, authority, but it would have your authority, that I'd speak as the very oracles of God, because you say so, because you, you anoint it with your spirit. Use it, Lord God, to inform us and illuminate us, and most of all, transform us to be the kingdom people that you want us to be. Lord, and our, our promise is that we're going to stay focused on you, whatever happens and not be distracted by fires that may be going on in our life, uh, to come on down from building the wall. Lord, we're just going to keep on building the wall. Uh, in your name, for your glory, and for your name's sake, in Jesus' name, we pray. And all God's people said, we have seen this. There's six basic elements to ancient covenants. If you're new here this morning, uh, you'll never get this because I'm going to go over it too fast. Get the previous tapes. Um, but, but it's basically this. They all had a vow. A pledge. They were sealed in blood. They walked through the parts of an animal. They had an exchange of identifications. They called on witnesses that were around them. They had a celebration that symbolized in different ways or manifested the new union that was made. And they then had a memorial that they built or an activity that they did to remind them of the covenant that they kept. The New Testament covenant that we have with God. It's uh, the Lord portrays our relationship with Him, our covenant with Him, as a marriage. We are the bride and he is the groom. And this marriage follows this, uh, n the nature of these ancient covenants. The vow we've seen so far in our study is uh, our confession of faith. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That verbal confession is important because in an ancient understanding, it's what brings you into the covenant. So you make a pledge. To say Jesus Christ is Lord is to say you are his disciple and you're making a pledge that you're going to live like that as though he is Lord and as though you are his disciple. The blood, of course, is the blood of Jesus Christ, who became our sacrificial lamb, uh, the, the butchered animal of the covenant. And we are washed in his blood, and that is what allows us to have a relationship with the All-Holy Father, even though we are stained with sin. The third thing is exchange of identities. That would happen in an ancient covenant. And this essentially is this, that God takes, Jesus Christ takes our sin and pays the price for it, and we take his righteousness. What a beautiful, holy exchange. This is the, this is the deal, folks. Uh, he takes our sin, we get his righteousness. And then there's a memorial that we've talked about so far, and that's what we celebrated last week. Communion, which you can have in your small groups, or we sometimes have as a large group here, is our time to remember. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember the covenant that the Lord made with us, what the price was, what the call is on our life. There's two things we haven't talked about yet. The celebration aspect of the ancient covenant and the calling out of witnesses. So I've got two little sermons I'm going to do on each one of those. Okay, we're going to finish those up in two little sermonettes. The celebration. In the ancient covenants, as I said, there would be a time where they'd have a ceremony which would celebrate the new union that was made and they'd do something to visibly express this new union. Uh, sometimes it was exchanging of garments or rings or swords or arms or things like that. 
but it was a ceremony that sealed and rendered official before witnesses uh, the, the, the new union that was uh, uh, being created. In the New Testament, this is, more than anywhere else, uh, shown through baptism. Baptism is the New Testament celebration of the covenantal union between a person and God. A lot of people today just don't know what to make of baptism. And the reason is primarily because it is not any longer understood in covenantal terms. Uh, Some people think that baptism is something you do to join a church. And it's not. It it wasn't that in the New Testament. Uh, Some people think that baptism is just a sort of a meaningless act, but it's it's out of obedience. It's like, I've had this explained to me this way. It's such a silly kind of embarrassing thing, but that's how God tests your sincerity. Uh, So you just obey, you know, even though it's kind of like, okay, I'll do it. But I appreciate the obedience. That's good. But But in the New Testament, it means much, much, much more than that. There are some people who think that baptism is actually what saves you. Um, and uh, that God is sort of uh, treats it like a magical thing. And though he loves you, he won't save you unless you're baptized. In fact, a lot of them will say unless you're baptized a certain way. But the New Testament never gives baptism that kind of magical formulaic quality. That's not where it's at. Other people go to the other extreme. And they say, well, if it's not about salvation, then it's optional. So it's just sort of like, well, if you get around to it someday, maybe, I don't know. If the weather's right, Maybe. Um, but see, the New Testament makes it urgent. How can it be urgent if it's not a matter of salvation? Well, the way to understand that is to understand it in covenantal terms. It really is like a wedding ceremony is to a marriage. More specifically, it's like the exchanging of rings in a wedding ceremony. It doesn't create the reality of the marriage, but if you've got the reality of the marriage... You're going to have, or at least you ought to have, the exchanging of of the rings. Paul addresses baptism in a real profound passage. It's Romans chapter 6. Probably the most succinct and penetrating and profound discussion of baptism in the New Testament. This whole chapter is so fantastic. In terms of 6, 1 through 11, man, it's, it's just incredible. But I'm going to really resist the temptation to preach on the whole passage because this is only my first sermon. The second sermon is coming. Um, verse 3 says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Uh, the word baptism in Greek is baptizo. It's really transliterated here, not translated. Uh, the translation is immersion or to dip or to dunk. Baptizo. So if you've been immersed into Christ Jesus, you've been immersed into everything about Christ Jesus, which means you've been immersed into the death. Of Christ Jesus. That's what baptism is about. Don't you know that as many of you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism in his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Here, in a nutshell, is what baptism in the New Testament is about it's a visible celebration and sealing of the inner covenant that we make with the Lord. The, the, uh, the New Testament never considers the possibility of the inner reality without the external celebration because it thinks in covenantal terms. And here's what baptism expresses. You have been buried with Christ. You are buried. When a person goes down into the water, they are saying, I am immersed in Christ. He was immersed in me. He was immersed into my death and my judgment, so I'm being immersed into his death. I'm saying it is for me. I'm identifying I'm identifying, publicly declaring my solidarity with the Lord in his death. In other words, when Christ died, I died. 
My old self died. And when Christ was crucified, my old self was crucified. When Christ suffered judgment, it was for me. It was as though I was judged there. You're, you're throwing yourself into what Jesus Christ did for you. He's the sacrificial lamb, and this is your way of saying, that is for me, all of me is for it, I identify with it. And then the person comes up out of the water. And when they come up out of the water, they are saying, as Christ's death is for me, so Christ's resurrection is for me. He went down into the ground and then came out of the ground, a resurrected, transformed Savior. I go down into the ground, I identify with, with his death and resurrection. The old self is dead. And when I come up, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. And you're saying, his life is for me in just the same way that his death is for me. We are submerged into his death and we're submerged into his life. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that we are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus. Like we're in this room right now. We are in Christ Jesus. The domain of our existence becomes Christ Jesus when we are immersed into him. You see the, 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 the talk here. We plunge into Christ Jesus. Which means this. What belongs to Christ Jesus now belongs to you. Baptism is, is, is saying that. He has newness of life, so I have newness of life because I am in him. He is holy before God, so I am holy before God because I am in him. He has a perfect relationship with the Father, so I have a perfect relationship with the Father because I am in him. He is loved perfectly by the Father, so I am loved perfectly by, by the Father because I am in Him. I'm plunged into His death and I'm plunged into His resurrection. He's seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus because I'm in Him, praise God. He's conquered death and the grave and Satan, and so I've conquered death, the grave, and Satan because I am in him. He's defeated the devil, so I've defeated the devil because I'm in him. The devil's under his feet, so the devil's under my feet because I am in him. Somebody say amen. That's what baptism shows, praise God. You have it by your identifica identification with the Lord. That total solidarity that is there. This is like, this is like, it doesn't make the reality. The reality is made by faith. But in New Testament terms, in covenantal terms, where you got the reality, you show it forth. You have the ceremony. You solidify it. You make it official. It's like the exchanging of rings at a wedding ceremony. I got a picture of this when I was preparing this message. And um, I can say it's a vision from God. Maybe it is a vision from God, but I really think it's true. I got a picture of me and Jesus getting married uh, in a church. And I am here. The, uh, the funky thing about the picture is that I'm the bride. Uh, <laughs> But hey, I, in terms of my relationship with Christ, I am the bride. All of us are. That's uh, the bride of Christ. So, you know, hey, I, I got in touch with my inner femininity, and I'm okay with it, all right? My inner feminine side. I got an inner feminine side. You'd never know, though, would you? Uh, <clears throat> okay, so the picture. Back to the picture. Focus. Back <laughs> I get you off track, and then I holler at you to get back on track. Okay, so... In this picture, I, I'm getting married to the Lord, and it's a beautiful wedding, and I'm the bride of Christ. And then there, there comes a time where the, you know, the, the preacher, there's a preacher in this, and says, you know, is it your desire to yada, yada, yada? And we say, I do. That's a you know, confession of faith. So I confess him as Lord uh, and Savior of my life. And he confesses me as his bride. And then the preacher says, would you like to now show this by the exchanging of rings? And we both say, yeah. And so the Lord takes out this huge, huge honking diamond ring. I mean, this is all right. So you gotta like, oh yeah. And it, it, the church lights up. It's radiant. It's just splendid. You know, it's just, whoa. And, and uh, he gives it to me, you know. 
and, and the churches are, we're all just going, ooh, ah. It's like the Emerald City sitting on my finger. You know? And then the Lord winks at me and says, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he whistles like that. I wish I, I can't do it. And into the church drives these trucks, uh, these pickup, these, these pickup dump trucks. And they're full of riches and diamonds and rubies falling off the edges of the, 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 the trucks. And the whole, the whole church now is like a kaleidoscope of colors because the light's being refracted by all these rubies and diamonds. And it's just overwhelming the riches, the beauty, the splendor. And I'm just, and I'm going, how can this, am I worth this? How could you possibly give all this? And his answer is, everything I have, I'm giving to you. And there's a lot more where that came from. Okay, that's the riches and glory that he wants to treasure on us. And then the preacher turns to me and says, and what would you like to give? <laughs> well, I have a song I'd like to sing for you. <laughs> no. Some enchanted. No, I... So I'm like, I, I search my pockets. It's like, ah, you know, it's just like me to forget. I'm supposed to go out and get a ring. But I, I, in my pocket, the only thing I have is this, this, this tab of a pop can. A tab ring of a pop can. And I, so I get this ring, and I, I just said, I do thee wed. And I gave it to him. It's all I had. And the beautiful thing is that the Lord was just overjoyed by my little pop can tab. It, it, was, it was beautiful to him. I, I, you know, I, and I probably got this a subliminal thing from the past. There was a little girl in first grade that I pushed down in the, in the playgrounds. And she fell on her back, and, and her legs went up, and I saw her underwear. And... Um, I thought I had to marry her. Uh, <laughs> Catholic school will do that to you. I mean, it was, it was, it was tough. <laughs> and so I thought, uh-oh, now i, now I got to marry her. And I hung around with her for about a year. And at one point I had this, this, uh, some kind of a tin ring. And so I gave it to her. I said, will you marry me? And she goes, sure. <laughs> um, well, it didn't work out. It was nice while it lasted. But these things sometimes, you know... Unrequited love. Um, anyways, so here I am giving the Lord this kind of, uh, this, this tin can ring, and he's overwhelmed by it. And this is what really goes on with the exchange that baptism uh, declares, with the exchange that is at the center of our covenant with God. We bring to him what is intrinsically worthless. Uh, it would, in and of itself, be destined for the garbage dump. Uh, Gehenna is the word for hell in Greek. And it really was the dump outside of Jerusalem. And that's, that's what the best we have to offer would be going. But the Lord is in love with us. And while the, he, he doesn't pretend like the ring is worth a trillion dollars, he loves it because it's yours and what he wants is you. It's your heart that he wants. And if the heart is full of, of pain and the heart is full of condemnation and the heart is, of, is full of failures, if you give it to God... He redeems it. He treats it. It's yours. It comes out of the depths of your being. It's actually a gift to him because now he has the opportunity to love you through it. Our salvation is like that. Our sanctification, our growth is like this. When we bring our pain and our faults and our weaknesses and our sin and our broken up marriages and our messy homes and our screwed up brains and the doubts and stuff that we and our anxieties and fears that we have in our life if we will just give it to him at the altar just say lord will you take it that's what he's looking for and to him is a precious thing because this is he's in love with us and this comes out of the heart and what that gives him a chance to do is to now pour on you the riches of glory praise god 
to envelop you in all of his rubies and diamonds and all that's just symbolism for his love, for all that he is, all that he is by nature he wants to give to us by grace. That's what he does. But as long as we keep trying to dress ourselves up and pretend like we've got a diamond that can compete with his diamond and keep trying to look a little better than we are and, and, you know, whatever, well, that blocks the heart in our relationship with him and it prevents him from pouring on us everything he wants to pour on us. Baptism, where we are immersed into him with our little pop can tabs and he is immersed into us with all the riches of glory. Uh, Baptism shows this. It celebrates it. It declares it. This is why I believe the word baptizo is, is important. It means to dip or to immerse. It's translated this way in different contexts in the New Testament. It shows that God, God wants, to, wants all of us into Him and all of Him into us. That's what the, the burial and resurrection thing is about. If you're here this morning and you've never been baptized, you've never had that ceremony, I would encourage you on the authority of the Word to seriously consider doing that. You can do it in your small groups. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to have an REV in front of your name. Uh, in order to baptize somebody. Uh, you, you, in a, there's been some powerful baptism services where people have just said, you know, will you baptize me? And they go out and the friends gather around, sometimes in a whirlpool, sometimes in a lake or, or whatever. We baptized somebody who was insane in October uh, when it was 40 degrees out in a lake. But praise God, it was God glorifying. Uh, you know, you suffer for righteousness sake. Uh, it was cold, but, but you can do it that way. If you don't have a covenant group, you can call the church, and we'll, we're putting together a list for this uh, picnic we'll have this, this summer when we have a baptism service. So consider that. Others here this morning have been baptized as infants. And for some of you, that's, uh, it was a meaningless thing. It means nothing. So I'd encourage you to be baptized, uh, to, to really seal this, officially, publicly declare it, uh, by going through this covenantal exchange. Still others of you have been baptized as infants, and that's a very meaningful thing to you. It is sort of like this. In a lot of cultures, they have arranged marriages. You're actually, you're actually married to the person while you're still an infant. And, um, uh, then, and that's considered a final thing. And a lot of people consider their infant baptism to be like that. And they owned it later on, um, but, but it was made for them by, in good faith by their parents while they're still infants. Um, and that has some Old Testament precedent because Jewish children were circumcised when they were yet children. We, at Woodland Hills, um, we're Baptists. We believe that, 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 uh, the, that the New Testament form of baptism is by immersion and that that symbolism is important. At the same time, uh, I want to recognize the sincerity and, and, and uh, legitimize that understanding. That's that understanding of infant baptism. Um, that's why we don't make it a condition for being a covenant partner with Wilden Hills Church. It's just not where we want to draw the, the, the distinguishing line. At the same time, let me just say this. Even in those cultures where you have infant, uh, where you have infant arranged marriages, there usually is a time later on where the person owns it for themselves, and they have a ceremony that does that. And I would encourage you to consider, be open to the possibility of reclaiming that, that baptism when you were a child for yourself through immersion, uh, taking on this whole, this whole manifesting the celebration of the burial and the resurrection with the Lord. Pray about it, think about it, and study the Word of God. That is the celebration aspect of the uh, New Testament covenant. Let's turn then to the final aspect of the New Testament covenant, and that has to do with witnesses. In the ancient covenant, they always called upon witnesses um, to, when, when they were making this covenant. The purpose of the witnesses was to hold them accountable. Now, when we become believers, 
with our confession, with our baptism, when we take communion, there are witnesses here. There's God, first of all. There are angels. The, the angels, uh, the Bible says a number of times, look into the things that we're, we're doing, their messengers and whatnot. And then there are other people. And let me say this, that from a New Testament perspective, they never understood the individual to be making a covenant apart from a community. It was always a community thing. The purpose, when, when people would witness a covenant being made, there's a new us being created by these parties, but they were now part of the us because they were to help the person keep their part of the covenantal arrangement. That's why there's a... In the New Testament, whenever anyone was, was entering this covenant and was baptized, it was understood that they were entering into a covenantal relationship with the whole community. It was never isolated like it is today. That's why we're seeing the need for a covenantal community here at Woodland Hills to, get, to capture some of the unity that you find in, in the New Testament. Because we tend to be so individualistic about this. The whole idea of accountability is not to police one another. It is there to help one another. To have a small group covenantal community, to have witnesses who, who are there on an ongoing basis to see your profession of faith and you're walking out the, the, the faith. They are the ones who will help you when you fall, when you're down on the ground, they can pick you up. When you're going through struggles, you can lean on their shoulders. We're here. No one is an island. We're, we need one another. Um, and that's what Christian community, Christian community is all about. Covenantal partners. We're all part of the same covenant. We witness each other's walk with God. We help each other in our, in our walk with God. That's the role of witnesses that it had in the, in the ancient covenants and that it ought to have today. There is another aspect of this, however, that I want to get into, and this will be the final thing I'm going to talk about here this morning. I never noticed this teaching uh, until I was preparing this message, uh, and I'd never read this passage in, in quite this way before. Uh, it's found in Ephesians chapter 3. That's okay. Thanks. Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to this. It has to do with this witnesses deal. It says this. This is, and this is, an, this is an incredible passage, folks. Paul says, verse 7, Ephesians chapter 3, Of this gospel I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of His power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches. That's the truckload of jewels I was talking about. The boundless riches of Christ. So Paul wants to be declaring this. And to make everyone see. It could also be translated to make everyone witness. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Now listen to this. Verse 10. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety, manifold reflections, uh, multi-layered, multi-faceted complexity, so that, the, that through the church, the wisdom of God in all its rich variety might now be made known or proclaimed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We're going to be getting to this. This is in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, this in other words, fulfills what God was always aiming at in creation. In whom, that's us being in Christ now, we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. What he's saying here, I'll explain this here all in a second, but in, in Christ, which is the wisdom of God, 
Now, let, let me pick this apart. What is the wisdom of God that, that uh, Paul's talking about? What is this wisdom, or what is the mystery of God that Paul is talking about? Let me turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, he says this. He discusses this concept of wisdom a little more fully. He, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God's wisdom came, but the world didn't recognize it. God decided through the foolishness of the proclamation, that is to say that the, the foolishness of the cross, to save all those who believe. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The wisdom of God is the wisdom of Christ crucified. Okay, note that. Now let me say one more thing, and then I'll start preaching. In in chapter 2, he says this, starting with verse 6. Yet among the mature we we speak God's wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The wisdom of God has to do with our glory. It was what God was aiming at throughout all of creation. Verse 8, hear this. None of the rulers of this age, the Greek word is archonton. Uh, It signifies the spiritual principalities and powers. Satan is called the Archon, the the Archimedean point, the chief ruler of this world, and there are a number of rulers under him. None of the rulers of this age understood this. They didn't get the wisdom of God. If they would have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The principalities and powers did not know what this was about. Here's the thing. The wisdom of God is this. It's what we've been talking about with this covenant, especially last week. The wisdom of God is the wisdom, the ingenuity, the genius by which he finds and develops a way to fulfill the purpose for which he he created the world with sinners such as us. We saw last week in the covenant, God does this. He finds a way by God becoming a man, Jesus Christ becoming a man, Jesus Christ dying on the cross. What happens is that God keeps his end of the covenant arrangement God keeps our end of the covenant arrangement through Jesus Christ. God then pays the price for our not keeping our end of the covenant arrangement. And then God, by the power of His Spirit, resides in us to motivate us to now begin to keep our part of the covenantal arrangement. The wisdom of God in a nutshell is this. It is the plan of God, secret from ages past, but now revealed to us and destined for our glory, the wisdom of God is the plan by which God, through becoming a human being and dying on the cross, is able to reconcile us to himself. He's able to acquire a bride. He's able to transform sinners into saints. He's able to set free people in bondage to Satan from the power of Satan. And he's able to defeat Satan himself. That's the wisdom of God. If the rulers of this world would have understood the wisdom of God, they wouldn't have crucified him. Why? Because the crucifixion is the center part of the wisdom. You see, the Bible says that Satan entered Judas and he orchestrated the betrayal. Satan Satan wanted uh, Jesus Christ crucified. 
You see, he and the demons under him do not understand love. They can't understand love. They are evil. Evil to the degree that a person is evil, they don't understand love. Love is the antithesis of evil. So they don't understand God's love, and they don't understand the wisdom of God that is centered around love, and therefore they don't understand the power of God, which is centered around love. When Jesus was walking down here on this earth, did you ever notice this in the Gospels? It says that the demons recognized him. They knew who he was. Uh, Jesus, why, but they didn't know why he was here. Why are you here? What, what are you doing here? Oh my gosh! Are you here to torment us before our time? It's, we're not up yet, are we? We're not ready to be cooked yet, are we? Uh, come on! You know, why are you here? They don't get it. They don't get it. Why? Because he was here because of love. But they don't understand love, so it's a mystery to them. What they do know is this. He, the Son of God, for whatever crazy reason, has entered into our domain. This is our territory. This is, we, we, we've conquered this. If he's human, he's killable. And so, from a demonic perspective, uh, Satan would see this, perhaps, as the one mistake that God has made, and therefore the one chance that he might have to actually pull out victory from the jaws of defeat at the last minute. Here the Son of God is, we can get him. So he orchestrates, through Judas and through the crowds, he orchestrates the crucifixion of the Son of God. But praise God. The holding backfires. Because God planned on this. Yes, God knew that Satan would do this. He foreknew that. What do you think about that? God knew. You know, the more evil you are, the more predictable you are. Uh, and God, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that when, when, when Christ was nailed to the cross, everything written against us, all the covenant breaking that we'd ever done, everything that would separate us from God was also nailed on the cross. And when that happened, he disarmed the principalities and the powers because the only authority they have on us is our sin. He disarmed them, took away their weapons, pulled the teeth out of the lion. And then the Bible says that in doing that, he made a mockery out of Satan, a laughingstock out of Satan. He defeated Satan. This is the wisdom of God. God uses Satan's blind hatred, his blind wrath, his lack of capacity to love, his evil intentions. God uses the whole thing to fulfill his intentions. Praise God. The one thing that will restore us right with God is by him becoming a man and dying on the cross. How will he get crucified? He's got an enemy that's perfectly willing to do it. So the enemy does it just as he, he suckers the, the, the devil, as it were. The devil bites the bait. And in doing that, praise God, the devil, thank you, enemy, sets us free. Deteased himself. Takes his teeth out. How do you say that? Threaders up all of his stuff. And the bottom line is this, in one swat, this is the manifold wisdom of God. This is the rich variety of the wisdom of God. In one deed, boom, the crucifixion, God gets everything he's ever been looking for, and Satan loses everything he's been looking for. God wins, Satan loses. That's the wisdom of God, praise God. In one swat, amen. In one swat, God gets a bride. God sets us free, one and the same deed. He, 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 the purpose for which he created the world is to have a bride he could pour his love into, receive the love back. The bride would love herself with this love, and the bride would love the world with this love. Bam, it happens because of the cross. Because of the cross, we're reconciled to God. Uh, we're, we're his bride. He sets us free. Because of the cross, the devil is defeated, and, and he is no more, praise God. And who do we have to thank for it? The devil. Because he's the one who crucified Christ in the, in the first place. That is wisdom to carry out your plan, and to get your enemy in his very act of opposing you to go along with it. Now, what does this have to do with the witnesses? You thought I got off track. 
I never get off track. Never. It's just that sometimes my tracks are too profound for anyone to imagine what it might be. But here's, here's the witnesses. Paul says this in Ephesians 3. We are to be, not only do we have witnesses when we become part of the, 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 the covenant, when we enter into this wisdom, when we are benefactories of this wisdom, but we are to be about making other people witnesses to this whole thing. Make them witness to it. We're saying, come on, join in on this covenant. Look, it's still going on. God has this outrageous plan of salvation. And the manifold glorious wisdom of God by which he's found a way to reconcile the world unto himself and defeat the devil all at the same time. And our lives are to be walking testimonies to the wisdom of God. Walking invitations to, 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 to invite people in to behold, this, to, to behold this wisdom and to partake of this wisdom, to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what Paul's about. We are to be expanding the circle of witnesses. We are all witnesses to the glory of God, and we are by the way we live, by the way we think, by the way we talk to be expanding that wherever we go, inviting people in on that. We're walking epistles, the Bible says. But one more thing, and this is the final thing. Paul says we even do that to the principalities and powers. Not as invitations to get saved any longer. The Bible never holds out any hope for their salvation. They're solidified. They're hopeless. But we declare it. We proclaim the wisdom of God to them. Ephesians 3.10. We make known the glory of God to them, the wisdom of God, the manifold, rich variety of God's wisdom to them. Why? Why might we do that? Here's the thing. Kingdom people, everything that's against God is a lie. Everything God is for is truth. By proclaiming the truth, you push back the lie in just the same way that when you turn on the light, the darkness must flee. The only authority the devil has today in your life or anywhere on this planet is the authority of a lie. In fact, it's always been that way. He got authority over Eve because he got her to believe a lie. It's all about lies. When we declare, when we proclaim to the world and to the principalities and powers the truth, we're turning on the light and the darkness must flee. God has invested us with that authority, that power to do that. One of the best things you can do in getting free of the enemy in any area of your life is just to begin to declare to them and declare to yourself and declare to your kids and declare wherever you go the truth, what has really happened, the truth that he is defeated, the truth that you are in Christ, the truth that you are kingdom territory. You declare that. And Paul says that we have this opportunity to look into the face of these defeated, pathetic, outwitted, outsmarted, powerless foes, and to say out loud what is truth. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is victorious. You are defeated. And therefore, my life and my family's life and this house's life has got to line up with that. You speak the truth. When you pray, speak the truth. Pray the truth. Declare it out loud. It's our main weapon against the enemy who is nothing but lies. These beings live and lie. They want to pretend like Jesus isn't Lord. They are Lord. But we declare, we, we make them reluctant witnesses by declaring the truth. And they hate truth, and so they flee. Resist the devil, and he shall flee from you. Proclaim what's true. He can't take the truth. I want to end this morning by doing this. On the authority of the Word of God, we are given power to proclaim to the rulers and authorities the manifold wisdom of God, the truth of who God is. And so we want to do it. Repeat after me. This is just, we're just praying along together here. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are Lord, that you are God, 
that you are king, that you are savior, and there is none other. We thank you, Lord, for loving us, for saving us, for redeeming us, for cleansing us, for rescuing us, and for making us whole. We thank you, Father, for making us your lovely bride. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us all authority to come against the powers of darkness. And so, Lord, right now, we want to take authority over every spiritual entity that would oppose us, that would oppose the church, that would oppose your work in the world. On the authority of the Word of God, we say out loud, against the principalities and power, that you have been defeated. You have been outsmarted. You were vanquished on the cross of Calvary. You have been disarmed. You have no authority over us. You are made a laughing stock. And on the authority of the Word of God, we say out loud that everything that opposes us in our lives must leave for you have been defeated. And we proclaim out loud that any spiritual entity that lingers here in Arlington High School must leave for we are kingdom people and on the authority of Jesus Christ we declare that you are defeated and we declare that this is kingdom territory and we are kingdom property and our homes are kingdom property and our family is kingdom property and everything that does not belong to the kingdom must in Jesus name leave for you are defeated you have been vanquished you are a mockery because of what Jesus Christ did for us in Jesus name we pray hallelujah Lord we thank you Lord we praise you we say it out loud we say it out loud. We say it out loud. Hallelujah. 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 Victory. We have the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. Your wisdom has no limit. Your power has no end. Hallelujah. Lord, I, I, I'm overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed by your wisdom. It is, it is too beautiful, too ingenious for any human being to ever have thought of this. How can people think that this has been made up? Lord, uh, we give you the praise and the honor and glory. Lord, as we walk out of here, I pray, Lord, that we would walk out as people who are married to you and that our lives would be a radiant testimony to truth against all lies. Lord God, keep us free from any uh, opponents who try to bring deception into our life. For you are Lord and there is none other. We live it, we think it, we speak it, we proclaim it. 
In Jesus' name.